I have called up in all my years of sorcery Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week we'll be covering Beyond the Singing Flame, the second story in the, I guess, Singing Flame, Philip Hastane series. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, so this sequel was published in the November 1932 issue of Wonder Stories. Um, I don't have the names of any other people that appeared in that issue of Wonder Stories. But even, it's interesting to note that if you look at the PDF of the first story, uh, where the first story is published, even in that story, there's a little write-up where the editor is saying, hopefully um, Clark Ashton Smith will return to this world and tell us what happens next. So he, he did that, and uh, that's what this story is. I don't know that I have anything else to say about it. Eh, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> did I nail that? <laughs> you did. So guys, there was this story, right? And then he was like, I'm going to write a sequel to this story. Because the editor said I should, so he might pay me for <laughs> and it. And I like the monies. <laughs> <laughs> When I, Philip Hastane, gave to the world the journal of my friend Giles Angarth, I was still doubtful as to whether the incidents related therein were fiction or verity. The transdimensional adventures were very much the sort of thing that Angarth might have imagined in one of the fantastic novels for which he had become so justly famous. Add to this the seemingly impossible and incredible nature of the whole tale, and my hesitancy in accepting it as veridical will easily be understood. At first, as I have mentioned in my foreword to the published diary, I thought the whole affair might well have been devised as a somewhat elaborate practical joke. But this theory became less and less tenable as weeks and months went by and linked themselves slowly into a year without the reappearance of the presumptive jokers. Now, at last, I can testify to the truth of all that Angarth wrote, and more. For I too have been in Edmos, the city of singing flame and have known also the supernal glories and raptures of the inner dimension. And of these I must tell, however falteringly and inadequately with mere human words before the vision fades. For these are things which neither I nor any other shall behold or experience again. Edmos itself is now a riven ruin. The Temple of the Flame has been blasted to its foundations in the basic rock, and the Fountain of Singing Fire has been stricken at its source. The inner dimension has perished like a broken bubble in the great war that was made upon Edmos by the rulers of the Outer Lands. Man, I just kind of want to end it there. I know, right? Yeah. Like he, that's kind of the whole story. Like he kind of came it out. is. Uh, I forgot, actually, there's a funny thing. I should have mentioned this in the last episode. But one of the edits that they made when they put this the two stories together is they bumped... Angarth down from like a very famous writer to a guy that people only kind of know. Yeah, um, oh, really? yeah. I don't know why. Like in the original story, um, Hastane describes Angarth as like I think he says that he's famous, and in the yeah. version on Eldritch Dark, he's like, yeah, he's a writer of some renown. Like they sort of, for whatever reason, when they put it together, they decided he uh, 
he shouldn't be famous. Anyway, you think he based Angarth off of somebody because Hastain is is obviously Smith because he lives mm-hmm. in Auburn, right? And he's a writer of strange fictions. Do you think Angarth is Lovecraft? That or like the the other people in the Lovecraft circle that he was corresponding yeah. with, so like Loveman or. So this intro uh, is funny because it does give the whole story away, but I what I like about it is that it it drops some like crazy terminology in here so that we can sort of like without really explaining it. And he says that Yidmos is the name of the singing flame. But then he talks about the inner dimension and these outer lands and all this nonsense. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Which is kind of fun, even though it does. It's a very spoilery intro. So what happened? How did, how did, uh, how did Hastain come to have his own adventure? Well, he just couldn't, he couldn't forget about what happened to his friends after reading the journal, which <laughs> is not too surprising when you think about it. No, although I do want to point out one weird detail of this thing, which is the, like, I thought that Giles Angarth was just a joker Mm -hmm. (laughs) aspect, which is weird because he seems so boring. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. And yet they're willing to ascribe to him this sort of, like, monumental fake-your-death kind of um, thing, which is just sort of odd. So Hastane goes to Angarth's pad um, Mm -hmm. and sees where the diary was was written that table outside and where the diary was left for him to find and as Ruth said he can't he can't um he can't put it out of his mind so he decides to go looking for these boulders and he can't find them he like searches around for a day and he doesn't find them and then he searches around for another day and he still doesn't find them and then I think he's like all right I'm gonna give up because there it's this is obviously a joke but then he's like, well, let me try one more day. And then he finds Angar's then... body, and it's the end. <laughs> <laughs> Next to some chewed up mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but then he does find the uh, the two columns and the the space. But it's funny because he, he kind of talks a bit about wormholes. I mean, he talks about Einstein, so I'm assuming like wormholes yeah. were kind of a thing in the public mm-hmm. consciousness by then. Yeah. yeah. So he kind of mentions how... You know, there's spaces where space folds and you can go from one spot through the other going through the hole. So that's mm-hmm. what he thinks the portal is. But instead of just jumping into the portal, he goes back and sleeps for the has night. A, has a sleep. Preps. Yeah. Yeah. I love Clark Ashton Smith heroes that are not terribly eager to jump into adventure. Right. Like, you right. can yeah. take the time to get drunk if you need to get drunk. You can take the time to sleep one more night if that's what you need before you, like, yeah. get up the gumption to do the thing. Yeah, he sleeps on it. And he has kind of like a bad night's sleep because he's haunted by what's going to happen. And now we get my favorite bit of adventure description. <laughs> uh, so I I'll, I'll guess I'll just read it. I carried a strong hunting knife and a Colt revolver and wore a filled cartridge belt with a knapsack containing sandwiches and a thermos bottle of coffee. Before starting, I had stuffed my ears tightly with cotton, soaked in a new anesthetic fluid, mild but efficacious, which would serve to deafen me completely for many hours. <laughs> So there's a couple of awesome details in there. There's obviously the sandwiches and the coffee. And then he's just completely deafened himself, which is, it's just cool. He's like a, I don't know. I just love like deaf adventurer Philip Hestane. Like Uh launches himself into the unknown, completely deprived of one of his key senses. So he steps through the boulders. Can we guess what happens? He goes to the same place. Oh my God. (laughs) But wait. Wait. Is it the same? Eh, Not quite. What's different? Well, a couple of things, but the main thing is that there are thick, thick black clouds uh, yeah. hanging in the sky. and Just opposite of the Titan City. Yep. And um, beyond the Titan City, uh, he can see the spires of another city that Giles definitely had not mentioned 
nope. in his journal that there would be two cities at all. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> and towers rose in serried lines. <laughs> but this, while somewhat concerning to Hestan, I guess like if you have this experience you're probably just a little bit more concerned that it was real at all, not necessarily with right. the differences mm-hmm. uh, between mm-hmm. your experience and your friends. So he, Hestane reaches the highway, the same highway that leads to the city. Um, and there are no, there's this time, there are no bunnies, there are no, no mosquitoes or butterflies, but there's also no crazy nothing. There's no crazy creatures at all. He's just completely by himself. So he keeps going to the city anyway to see what would happen yeah well it's kind of cool when he sees when he looks across and he sees that uh the other city okay so there's a blackish cloud that has reared behind the towers of the second city Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then a repulsion emanates from its spires and they quiver and pulse with an evil light like living and moving things yeah it's almost like some sort of um old school phasers or some such yeah some kind of light weapon. Yeah, and then it just uh, it fades. I think he get, as he gets closer to this to the to the yeah he loses most, sight he loses of the sight other of one. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he gets all the way up to the gates of the city and finds that they are closed. This place is yeah. shut down for business. And even as small as he is, he can't like somehow get through any kinds of cracks or crannies. He's small, but he's not quite that small. But just then, as luck would have it, two flying creatures come swooping out of the sky. So I'll read the description because I thought they were cool. Um, they supported <laughs> these guys are awesome. They supported themselves on queer, delicate legs that branched at the knee joints and floating antennae and waving tentacles. Their wings were sumptuously modded webs of pearl and matter, opal and orange. Their heads were circled by a series of convex and concave eyes and fringed with coiling horn-like organs from whose hollow ends there hung aerial filaments. So they're a little bit like the red-winged guys from before, but also a little bit different and just kind mm-hmm. of bizarre. Like, I had a little bit of a hard time picturing exactly what they look like. They're kind of yeah, like birds, right. but also like insects. Insects. And he, uh, Hestane, <laughs> does not grab his revolver and start blasting. Nope. Which is good. <laughs> he does not also offer them a sandwich or no. some coffee. Or coffee. <laughs> Nope. Actually, now that the sandwiches and the coffee have really been brought to my attention, I'm just going to be wondering. They're like Chekhov's guns, <laughs> but they never get fired. Yeah. Like, nope. When the hell does he eat those sandwiches? He might never do it. <laughs> he might never do it. <laughs> well, during this whole time, during the whole time where he's approaching the gate, he's hearing this noise, this kind of like discordant thundering that's disturbing him, but it's it's far off. It's uh, intuitions of cosmic menace. Mm-hmm. And then the... Uh, the Mothmen, they uh, they kind of realize that he wants to get into the city. Yeah, like right? he, he, he sort of instantly knows that they're friends. Yeah. They're like insta-best friends. Yeah, it's like they, they're all there for the same reason and somehow they get it. They're like the Care Bears of the Yidmos dimension. Yeah, and they're like, friendship is magic. And they shoot <laughs> their tentacles out. And... Those aren't Care Bears. Those are my little ponies. Oh, what's the difference? <laughs> oh, I guess ponies and bears. You know goddamn well what the difference is. <laughs> So he's yanked up into the sky and carried over the ramparts. Which is very polite of them. Yeah, the friendship is magic. Is that, Does he ever mention the color of the city? Because I always picture it as red, the the evil city. Oh, the evil one? I always yeah. picture it as like a weird black with like purple highlights and stuff. Uh, well, whatever. This city is advancing and wrecking as it goes. This is the asshole of cities. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. such a <laughs> jerk. <laughs> Like, A, cities aren't supposed to be able to walk like that. 
B, it's just rude. <laughs> Again, like the the visionary quality of these stories is it's like a it's a fine vintage. So as our deaf hero with his backpack full of sandwiches <laughs> is carried by the moth bird creatures over the closed city of the singing flame, he catches sight of a walking war city that is coming towards the city of the singing flame. And he, he somehow intuits, like Angarth before him, that, that, there, that the meaning of this is that there is a war going on. I think he uses yes. it here, but we don't really get the details until later. Oh, yeah, and I thought this was a cool little package, too. Yeah, so this, this, is, this is where he sort of, or passage, where he realizes that, that there's a war. Uh, I realized but dimly the cataclysmic ruin that was being loosed upon the city behind us and the doom from which we were fleeing. And so this is as he's being carried deeper into the city. I knew that war was being made with unearthly weapons and engineeries. Engineeries? <laughs> by inimical powers that I could not imagine for a purpose beyond my conception. But to me, it had all the elemental confusion and vague, impersonal horror of some cosmic catastrophe. Which is cool. He's like, there is some serious, fantastical war-making going on here, and I can't mm. figure it out, but <laughs> it's, it's not good. And he has no awareness, really, of who the two parties in this even are. Yeah. No. Which is kind of fascinating, to find yourself in the middle of a war and have no idea who's fighting about what. Yeah. But these things, these, these, his new besties, they drag him in the air through the city towards the shrine. They take him all the way into the shrine, and they're, like, headed directly towards the flame. I think this little passage would probably be a little bit... It's tricky when you get into a situation where you're writing a story that's a journal, right? Because mm -hmm. if we didn't know already that he wasn't going to die when he was right. dragged into the flame... This passage would be really suspenseful. As it as it yeah. is, I think it's still a pretty cool little bit of like, oh my god, I'm going into that flame that might kill me. But it would be a little bit better if we didn't already, of course, know that he wasn't going to die. They they drag him directly into the flame. He's like, oh my god, I'm going to die. I'm going to die exactly like Angarth died. Right. Uh, and then they drag him directly into the flame. They go yeah. through. The flame enfolded us like a green curtain, blotting from view the great chamber. Then it seemed to me that I was caught and carried to super-celestial heights in an upward-rushing cataract of quintessential force and deific rapture, and an all-illuminating light. It seemed that I, and my companions, had achieved a godlike union with the flame, that every atom of our bodies had undergone a transcendental expansion and was winged with ethereal lightness. It was as if we no longer existed, except as one divine, indivisible entity soaring beyond the trammels of matter, beyond the limits of time and space to attain undreamable shores. Unspeakable was the joy, and infinite the freedom of that ascent in which we seemed to overpass the zenith of the highest star. Then, as if we had risen with the flame to its culmination, had reached its very apex, we emerged and came to a pause. My senses were faint with exultation, my eyes blind with the glory of the fire, and the world on which I now gazed was a vast arabesque of unfamiliar forms and bewildering hues from another spectrum than the one to which our eyes are habituated. It swirled before my dizzy eyes like a labyrinth of gigantic jewels, with interweaving rays and tangled lusters, and only by slow degrees was I able to establish order and distinguish detail in the surging riot of my perceptions. All about me were endless avenues of super-prismatic opal and jacinth, arches and pillars of ultraviolet gems, of transcendent sapphire, of unearthly ruby and amethyst, all suffused with a multi-tinted splendor. 
I appeared to be treading on jewels, and above me was a jeweled sky. So psychedelic freakout. Psychedelic yep. freakout happens. And he goes to Sovngarde. <laughs> yes! <laughs> uh, so this is, to me, what makes this second story special, is just how psychedelic this is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I hate about it. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I, I can't hate it. I just, it feels so profoundly ahead of its time that I just think it's kind of amazing. Like, it feels like something written, like, by somebody who was using a lot of LSD in the 1960s and decided to write a piece of Timothy Leary-inspired fantasy yeah. fiction. Um, and we still don't know if Smith used drugs, right? Uh, we know that, like, didn't he say about the hashish eaters that he wrote it without ever having taken hashish? Mm-hmm. But he wrote that rather early, so I would imagine yeah. that he, at some point, did use drugs. It's <laughs> really interesting. It's a, yeah, it's totally fascinating, and it just it just feels totally like totally ahead of its time to me. Because he definitely was a guy who was into like visionary poetry and and the yeah, poetry absolutely. of like I guess you wouldn't call it psychedelia, but you'd call it like the romantics and their sort of mm-hmm. love of drugs and and heightened reality or whatever mm-hmm. but it just like suddenly you're in a story that that feels like it was written 30 years later um yeah that's very true which is cool ruth why don't you like it uh possibly because we're suddenly in a story that feels like it was written 30 years later <laughs> <laughs> no i just so it kind of you don't like it because it kind of slips the bonds of that like the weird fiction yeah it's moved out of weird into the kind of stuff that i guess i don't really enjoy in my fiction yeah like we're in this weird floaty place and he meets up with Giles and Evan Lee and they're just like, like, hey, you can learn to fly just here. <laughs> fly. And like everything is cool, man. We're like we've expanded our consciousness and we're in this new dimension and there's another dimension to come. <laughs> I'm just like, eh, give me necromancers. Give me skeletons. There's nothing interesting about this dimension. It's just colors. I'm kind of sitting in the middle of you two because I I can appreciate and I do appreciate the like the visionary attitude of it. But when I'm reading it, I'm like, okay, I get it. Yep, you're on Gem World. Let's get to what's going on now. Then he's in psychedelic Matrix world. This yeah, mm-hmm. I like psychedelic Matrix world, and even the like the psychic thing is crazy to me too because it's like, and now you can fly with the power of your mind, which also feels like an idea that comes from about thirty. Or 35 years later. God, there's a push and pull here. I don't know who to go with. <laughs> but then it's like, there's nothing interesting about this world. Besides, like, okay, besides the fact that you can fly, but there's no interesting reason to fly. You're just like, dude, 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 dude. This is like like a really boring but slightly pleasant dream. I think, I think that there is an interesting reason to fly. It's precisely because he says that be- even beyond this realm, that is beyond our own, re- beyond the realm, beyond our own realm, there are realms beyond those realms. And I just think that it's like a supreme expression of, again, like a very Clark Ashton Smithian philosophy that there right. is, a, that you like, even within the world inside your mind, there's another world and another world and another world and another world. And even though there, even though he fails to ground it in specifics, it is like it becomes like the critiques of him leveled them at the time. Like it just becomes poetry in some sense. Like it's not, it, it starts right. to fail to be a story and becomes just like pure imagery but i really love the idea of what is the realm to the people who live in a weird fantasy realm what's the fantasy realm to them and what's the fantasy realm to the people beyond them like there's a great sort of like 
uh, the escalation escalation of it or like a like a sort of weird um almost like philosophy of fantasy fiction like in, entrenched in it even though he sort of fails to to ground it in any kind of yeah. like mm-hmm. you know uh dragon world i also love the other part of it that feels so 60s to me is like that there is this like dark menacing force that's trying to like shut down the the like peace love and yeah. happiness movement like the nixon city is like coming to squash the hippies which is just i just think is hilarious <laughs> and again yeah. like he like he some clergation smith took a massive load of whatever hallucinogens were available to him in 1930 and like suddenly saw 1968 and was like oh man what is going on in kent state this is messed up <laughs> So going off of that, this is my idea for why those two boulders were where they were in the first story and in, yeah. and in general. Okay. It's a trap. It's like a Venus flytrap. And it puts out its tentacles oh. into these little ports to all of these different planes or realms of existence or whatever we are exactly in, in relation to each other. And it sucks in people and then it uses the song and then the song draws them in. So it's not that they're pilgrims. They're they're being sucked into this thing and they can leave, but once it's gotten into your head, it's never coming out again. So it's like it's like the singing flame feeds on this. They actually mention that because all right, yeah. So he he goes through and he wakes up and he sees that Giles and uh, Ebonly are alive and they've been living in here and they're wearing really cool silk robes that they created with their mind, <laughs> which is so fly. culty. It's so culty right, right. there. <laughs> It's culty. On the other hand, if there was a cult that allowed me to actually fly with my mind, I might join that cult. Yeah, I might join that cult. <laughs> they tell Philip Hastain that the outer, the, the lords of the outer lands are waging war on the city of the singing flame because the inner dimension is hated as a thing that lures idle dreamers away from worldly reality. So, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly what you were just saying, Ruth. Like, this dimension pulls people from other dimensions to go live in their happy dimension and maybe they uh maybe they're workers in the city and the cities maybe the walking city needs workers and they keep going and jumping into the city the singing walking city it's just they're so republican i can't handle it (laughs) (laughs) it's like kissinger and nixon so giles tells him this whole story about how there's this war going on because the walking city was noticing that the singing city was taking an awful lot of its population and sucking them into this inner dimension. And they, but then he, they also tell him that, uh, and this is where we get into the flying with your mind thing, that yeah. there are realms beyond the inner dimension and that all of the pilgrims who have gone through the singing flame are going to escape into this other dimension. And that the flame, the creation point of the flame is a rock inside mm-hmm. Yidmos. And that the they don't know if it can be destroyed or not. The walking city is going to try. So they need to get out because they don't know if destroying the flame will also destroy the inner dimension. So they're like, hold right. their hands and we'll And there's fly. a further inner one, so they can get out, probably. I mean, right. not really sure what yeah. that's doing. I think it's assumed that the other all the other pilgrims who have gone into the flame have escaped, or at least many of them already have right. already escaped into this yet further beyond dimension. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they all—they're also worried that he won't, since he's so new and he hasn't had time to learn it all. They're afraid that he won't be able to escape. But they're gonna try to. Yeah, that was a him. weird part of it for me. That like you have to stay there and cook for a while. Yeah, right. as it were. 
We don't let just anybody can go into here. You have to, like, just chill here in this world of colors and fly and sort of float in the air and fly and float and chill. I'm, I have feelings again. I have feelings <laughs> like I love this story. <laughs> so what happens is they're flying. They're flying and flying. Yeah, they, they, they take his hand and it's like the first Superman movie. And they're like <laughs> flying against it like a bad green screen through... Can you read my mind? Through Gem World. <laughs> <laughs> through Gem World. And then they all go crazy like that actress went crazy. Um, <laughs> so, and as they're going, he, he uh, Hestane, catches a glimpse of what this next world would be like, right? He catches a glimpse of, mm-hmm. like, the yeah. mountain beyond the mountain or something crazy like that. But before they can make it, something terrible happens. Then... Beyond the high and luminescent alp of our destination, I saw the mounting of a wall of darkness, dreadful and instant, positive and palpable, that rose everywhere and toppled like some Atlantean wave upon the irised suns and the fiery-colored vistas of the inner dimension. We hung irresolute in the shadowed air, powerless and hopeless before the impending catastrophe and saw that the darkness had surrounded the entire world and was rushing upon us from all sides. It ate the heavens, blotted the outer suns, and the vast perspectives over which we had flown appeared to shrink and shrivel like a fire-blackened paper. We seemed to wait alone, for one terrible instant, and a center of dwindling light on which the cyclonic forces of night and destruction were impinging with torrential rapidity. The center shrank to a mere point, and then the darkness was upon us like an overwhelming maelstrom, like the falling and crashing of cyclopean walls. I seemed to go down with the wreck of shattered worlds in a roaring sea of vortical space and force, to descend into some infrastellar pit, some ultimate limbo to which the shards of forgotten suns and systems are flung. Then, after a measureless interval, there came the sensation of violent impact, as if I had fallen among these shards at the bottom of the universal night. Come on, that's awesome. You don't get that. No, that's when the story gets good again. That's when the story gets good again. When when something dark comes into this world. You're in love with evil. Yes. (laughs) I'll come to it. It makes life much more interesting. Not, you know, evil like the people who keep Congress and making life in my city really freaking annoying. This is a very Evil? political episode. Tim, we're going but... there. <laughs> Vote your but conscience. It's just so much more interesting when there's, you know, evil in the story as compared to, or or amusement in the story. In some ways, the story, the end of the story, almost makes me feel like um, Voyage to Svenamoe and like the end of The Seven Geeses. I, I got that kind of same thrill out of it and i don't know if i was supposed to but i was sitting there laughing and going oh thank god (laughs) which is probably very wrong of me yeah because you're happy that the hippie dream was crushed under the jackboots of reaganism uh the hippie dream was crushed and a little more than that was crushed you know (laughs) i don't know what you're referring to but i know i don't like it well I just know that when he looked up, um, sure, Angarth was there, and he was he oh, was oh, going to be you're, okay. You're back in the story, I understand. Yeah, I'm back in the story. <laughs> right. But, you know, I've only um, had been crushed under one of the pillars. Yeah, so they're back in they're back in Yidmos, yeah. which has been... Yeah, it's super sad. Yeah, had been uh-huh. ruined 
um, ruined by the walking city. Ruined. <laughs> yeah, the whole city is destroyed, and it's just wrecked, man. They must have gotten the stone. Yeah, yeah, and the flame isn't there anymore. And he looks over and he sees Ebony crushed over pillars, dying. And he goes over to him, and Ebony says, "It's no use. I'm going in a moment. Goodbye, Hastane, and tell Angarth goodbye for." That's super sad. How can you be happy about that? <laughs> <laughs> <It's beautiful. laughs> that laugh. That laugh is going to haunt me. <laughs> I just... It makes me so much happier about the story. I like the story so much better. <laughs> like when I got to that point. Because I was really bored and about to throw the story across the room. The first time I was reading it. And then I got there and I was like... Pah! It was a good moment. Uh, so yeah, so then he tells, he wakes Angarth up and he tells him and Angarth kind of just sits there for a little while and kind of just wants to sit there forever and die. But, um, Hastane gets him up. Yeah. See, Hastane isn't actually, like, he's not a bad person. Maybe around here, he doesn't mention it, but maybe they shared a sandwich as they're, because <laughs> they have to climb over all the wreckage. Here's the thing. Yeah. Here's the thing about a good thermos. It's going to keep that coffee warm through yeah, at least two dimensions. That coffee's still hot in that thermos. Oh, yeah. It's a damn fine cup of coffee. <laughs> and hot. Uh, so, yeah, Hestane drags um, Angarth to his feet, and they start to make their way out of uh, Yidmus. And they see, like, they see sad things, like the charred bodies of the Dark Colossi, who are the people yeah. of Yidmus. Yeah, that makes me sad, because it's not their fault. Your emotions about the end of the story are giving me whiplash. I can't keep <laughs> up. Which deaths well, are sad, which deaths are happy, what's what's going on? Ebenless just more amusing than happy. We all heard that laugh. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know, maybe I just have odd emotions about the story. He looks it was just at... going to a place that I really didn't like, and then it just came back to a place where I'm like, yeah, this feels more right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what, they don't really explain what happened to the walking city. Like, it just, it, like, yep. ate the admiss and now it's gone. It had, yeah, it, the moving towers of the wrathful outer lords had withdrawn. Huh. Their armies had disappeared on the plain beyond Edmos. It did what it came to do. Oh, I wonder what else breed. goes on in this alternate dimension. Like, how many cities are there and what, yeah. what goes on? I guess we'll That's never a good know. question. Yeah. And how many are dimensions are connected lords? to each other? What do they look like? Yeah. Who are these outer lords? And do their eyeballs crack into bloody tears? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> like pygmies lost in some shattered fortless of the giants, we stumbled onward, strangling in mephitic and metallic vapors, reeling with wariness dizzy with the heat that emanated everywhere to surge upon us in buffeting waves. The way was blocked by overthrown buildings, by toppled towers and battlements, over which we climbed precariously and toilsomely, and often we were compelled to divigate from our direct course by enormous rifts that seemed to cleave the foundations of the world. The moving towers of the wrathful outer lords had withdrawn. Their armies had disappeared on the plain beyond Edmos when we staggered over the riven, shapeless, and scurriot crags that had formed the city's ramparts. Before us was nothing but desolation, a fire-blackened and vapor-vaulted expanse in which no tree or blade of grass remained. 
Across this waste, we found our way to the slope of violet grass above the plain, which had lain beyond the path of the invaders' bolts. There, the guiding monoliths, reared by a people of whom we were never to learn even the name, still looked down upon the fuming desert and the mounded rack of Edmos. And there, at length, we came once more to the grayish-green columns that were the gateway between the worlds. Actually, hold on. That's the other funny thing, is that he's totally deaf. We didn't talk about this when he's in the gem dimension. That he's totally deaf, but he can still hear his friends, because they're all, like, super psychic now. This story's yeah. awesome. Well, I wonder, I wonder how long it... <laughs> yeah, that's true. Is he deaf the entire time? Yeah, he's deaf right, the entire let's... time. He never takes that shit out of his ears. I love, like, well, whatever. There's a lot of great language at the end of this story. Yeah. You just heard it. It's great. It's fantastic. It takes Ruth back to a dark and terrible place that she feels comfortable in. <laughs> it does. And then they go back to the boring, regular world. Yep. Sorry. I feel like, yeah, so I love these stories. I think that they are amazing for a couple of reasons. Let me articulate them. One, there's a lot of great language. Two, they are uh, rife with fascinating metaphorical possibilities. Like, are they... I don't necessarily think they were written as drug metaphors, but I do think that they are very, like, very much metaphors for, like, the artistic process, right? That he right. he has to yeah. go to this place, and every time he goes there, he sees these wonderful things, and he can't stop, he can't stop thinking about. It. He has to go back to do these things, and then even in the second story, where you get the sort of like the the lords of outer darkness or whatever <laughs> that metal walking city is as this kind of representation of like the humdrumness. Well, editors are like the humdrumness of like industrialization <laughs> yeah. or whatever, like the world that Clark Ashton Smith hated and like saw coming, you know. Um, I kind of, yeah. yeah, I kind of like the evil city as a as a thing of in, in industry destroying some sort of beautiful, yeah, like pastoral visionary mm-hmm. version of the world. Yeah, and I don't know, like I've probably made this case before, but I would I would say that regardless of their like objective enjoyment to read, they're like somewhere in here is probably like the quintessential Clark Ashton Smith like philosophy of the world. Philosophy, I think. yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, but they do. I will say this: there's like. The first time I read them, I was bored because there's a lot of repetition in terms of what the action is. It's like, yeah. step to the so stones, much back walk and to forth. the city, walk back from the city, step to the stones, yeah. walk to the city, walk back from the city. Like, it's just, they, yeah. he kind of like, he retreads the same geography so many times that it gets a little tiresome. In conclusion, vote Nixon in 74. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and that's the uh, Beyond the Singing Flame by Clark yeah. Ashton Smith. Uh, what are we reading next? Next? I'm just... We are reading Hunters from Beyond. Yeah. Which I really like, so I'm very excited about that. Oh, probably everybody dies. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, um, like, innocence is destroyed, Ruth is happy, <laughs> and the world burns. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a rough week, you guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Beyond the Singing Flame. Hope you don't get lost in any kind of drug-induced hazes or find yourself crushed under the jackboots of Richard Nixon and his cronies. <laughs> But if you do, let me know. (laughs) Yeah, if you do, snap a picture and send it to Ruth. It'll make her night. (laughs) And good night. (laughs) Make, Make the sound of the other city. We suck. We suck. We suck. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>